0: Yep, so in, in the business plan, the business plan was by default we're going to go to court. The the, the good scenario would have been if council liked it, but you also run the risk if you don't go to court, you run the risk of negotiating for council with 12 months and they reject it, and then you have to go to court and you've incurred all these variations from all the consultants. So it's it's a bit of a gamble and it's a bit of a balancing act. <laughs>
1: You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 102 of the show. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? How are your projects going? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Plenty going on, as usual. Got another great show coming up for you today with a guest that I know you're going to love. We have a great conversation about property development, more around the commercial side of developing, so something slightly different, but a fascinating discussion nonetheless, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy that. Just before we get to that, a quick project update from me. Things are moving along at Cambridge Road. We've got internal painting that's happening in the back eight townhouses, which is nice. Great to see the transformation when that base coat of white paint goes on. Looks like a bit of a winter wonderland in those units at the moment, which is nice. Nice. The external cladding and rendering of the front units is just about done, so hopefully the scaffolding will be coming down on that soon and there will be the big reveal. And then we'll have a clean site, so no scaffolding across the whole site, which will be great. I'm actually getting ready to start up a sales campaign for the remaining townhouses that we've got so that we can start to sell them off before we reach completion. Some of them are getting to a point where we'll be able to stage them and use them as display homes and sell them that way so people can walk around and get a feel for them, which will be nice. On my other project, we're still waiting on the decision from council. They say it'll be next month when it goes up to the planning panel. So, until then, just doing all the preparatory work for the next stage. Now, speaking of next month, I'm not sure when you're going to hear this, but if it's before the end of June in 2023, I've got a special end of financial year running for a discount on the property developer training. So, if you are interested in getting a discount and getting started in property development, then act quickly before the 30th of June. Head to propertydevelopertraining.com and use the code E-O-F-Y. That's E for Echo, O for Oscar, F for Foxtrot, and Y for Yankee. And that special will be up until the 30th of June, 2023. So act fast. If you haven't already got a copy of my book, be sure to head over to propertydeveloperpodcast.com forward slash book and grab a copy of Become a Million Dollar Property Developer. I share how I went from planning on doing a 6-unit site to a 20-townhouse development and have since gone on to do multiple medium-density projects. So, I share the lessons learned and some other insights I've picked up along the way. And finally, take the free quiz if you want to find out how ready you might be to become a property developer. Head to propertydevelopertraining.com forward slash quiz to check that out. And a quick buzz for the social channels. You can always catch me on Insta and Facebook at Property Developer Podcast. You can also see the video versions of these shows on YouTube. So look up Property Developer Podcast if you want to see what I look like or what the guests look like and how we interact. Uh, It's always fun to see the video version of the show. All right, on to today's guest. Julian Carlo-Stella from Whitestone. This is a really interesting conversation about Julian's journey into property development. Slightly unusual in some ways, as we'll discuss. Julian shares his story about how he started out wanting to be an architect when he was younger, but then didn't get the results he needed to get into that course, so he did a construction management course instead. And in doing that, he realized he actually wanted to be the developer, not just the designer. And now he is focused on creating wealth through asset accumulation. So he's got some interesting tales to share about how he's going about doing that. And Julian has decided to focus his efforts on commercial and industrial assets that produce cash flow. Julian has certainly had some interesting things happen along the way and he shares how he actually planned for his first project to take the planning application to court to get his permit which sounds crazy, right? And he actually did that. So, keep an ear out for that story because it was pretty fascinating. Anyway, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this chat with Julian, so let's get stuck into it and find out what food Julian would eat until he was sick. You know what, I prepared for all
0: the questions, except that one, despite listening for so many years. Um, let me think, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty big pizza lover and a seafood lover, so combining those two loves, I'd have to say seafood pizza.
1: <laughs> yeah it's funny how people like have, having seafood on pizza i don't mind prawn on pizza but um apart from that no i don't know oh, salmon on pizza can be okay sometimes
0: yeah oh to be a salmon on pizza is the one that i don't like actually <laughs> but yeah it is it, when you think about it like that it is a bit of a weird mix but it i just love it pizza marinara yeah exactly
1: Very good. Well, Julian, it's great to have you on the show. We're going to have a slightly different conversation today, more around property developing with commercial assets um, because you've done some interesting things there. But give us a bit of a background about yourself and how you got into property.
0: Um, So it starts a little bit a while ago. Ever since I was a kid, I'd always loved property, kind of designing things, building things, you know, starting out with Lego, that sort of thing. So ever since I started primary school, I always had my mindset on being an architect uh, because I didn't understand the full scope of roles within property. So I just had assumed the architect did everything. Um, So I had that all the way up to high school, up to HSC, kind of didn't get the marks to get into architecture. So ended up studying construction project management at the University of Technology in Sydney, in, um, Sydney with the pure goal of getting the marks just to transfer to architecture and then following on in that career. Uh, Within a few months, though, of studying project management, realised I quite enjoyed it, realised they actually had a lot more control over the project than the architect does in some sense, and they also earned a lot more money. So that kind of drew me into that role. I then got a cadetship uh, with a company called Wattpack after my second year of uni. Uh, enjoyed it but realised that it wasn't really playing to my strengths and it wasn't really what I thought it was going to be. Uh, and actually, sorry, before that, I'd met, I was labouring to kind of just get my foot into the industry, met my mentor who was a property developer, and he really opened my eyes that being the property developer was the person that controlled the entire process. So with that in mind, then I put the stepping stones in place, then got the cadetship with WAPAC to learn that construction experience, uh, did two years with them, then worked with a boutique developer to learn the development side of things, and then from there quit and then started my own company. So that was uh, four years ago. So that was kind of the process to get there, but really it was it was probably a five-year plan leading up to actually quitting that so i always had that end goal in mind and just figured kind of work backwards said to, to start my own company what experience do i need and what steps do i need to put in place to get there so it was a very uh, thought out methodical process
1: and was it residential developments that you were involved with in those early days
0: Yeah, so it was residential. I wasn't too fussed about whether it was residential or commercial because the the process itself is really the same. Uh, At that point in time, I didn't know whether I was going to get into residential or commercial. I just knew that I wanted to be a property developer and I wanted to build wealth rather than developing and selling. Uh, So while I was working with the developer, I was doing my own research. You know, after work, I'd been building up my company for ever since I started in construction. So i had been building up my company for three years, kind of just building that up in the sense I got an ACN and didn't really do much beyond that in terms of buying property. Um, But I would go out and door knock and pretend I was a developer and see if I could put options together and try to do massive aged care developments. Nothing ever eventuated, but it was fantastic experience, just door knocking, um, trying to pitch developments to them. Uh, talking to architects, doing feasibility. So I basically pretended to be a developer for three years before I actually became a developer, and it was, it was a fantastic experience.
1: I think there's lots of property developers out there pretending to be property developers.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's how you start. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then when you were back at uni, you said you really enjoyed the construction manager course that you were doing and the role that they played. Why do you think that is?
0: Uh I think I, I, I quite enjoyed it. because I enjoyed the job itself, even though I realised it wasn't for me. I enjoyed it because you really got your hands across the whole, in, that, in this sense, the whole construction piece. Uh, so you got quite a bit of broad experience and it wasn't just, because I was on the project management side, it wasn't just kind of on the ground. You were seeing behind the scenes. So you were learning about procurement, contracts, administration, negotiating, tendering, estimating. All that sort of behind the scenes. And to be honest, I kind of, even though the construction side was really interesting, I was a lot better when, when, what I found is it's a lot more reactive when you're on the ground and when you're kind of back in the office, it's more proactive when you're planning more in the future. Whereas when you're on the ground, you're kind of working day to day. Uh, I realised I'm a lot better suited to that planning side of things. I kind of get, I make bad decisions when I have to react very quickly. I'd rather have a bit of time to think about it
1: properly. Um, so, but I just, I just really loved construction. (laughs) And then what was the transition from pretending to landing something and making a project happen?
0: Uh, so I'd, with, with all the pretending, I started to refine what I wanted to do. So originally it was, funnily enough, it was a bit of a 360. So originally it was actually, I was just looking at like, duplexes and kind of the standard thing that everyone starts are looking at just buying a raw block of land and developing it. Uh, and I was actually looking into going with my dad and we were act- we were going to auctions and we were at that point actually trying to buy something. Thankfully we didn't end up buying anything cause the feasibilities were completely off, but we were, I can't remember what year, I think it was like 2014 property prices were moving pretty quickly and we were getting smashed at every auction. So I realised from that, I'm like, well, I just can't keep on doing this because I realised it was the people who were beating me were people that were, all, that were going to go broke because my feasibilities, were, my feasibilities were way undercooked and these guys were paying like 100, 200 grand more for sites than I could afford. So I realised I was just going to keep getting beaten at that market because there were going to be people that were beating me on price even though they were going to go broke doing it. So I then had transitioned. I saw childcare as a good opportunity. Um but I couldn't I just couldn't make a stack up. Uh, and then I'd actually switched to boarding houses because it had it still fit my philosophy of develop and hold. I eventually found a site that worked, uh, and it was at the point where i I figured I'd learned enough from the company that I was working with at the time. So I put together a business plan, sent it out to everybody I could think of that either had money or were connected to money um, to look for equity partners ended up, my accountant got in touch with me, he put me in touch with his wealth advisor that I'd also previously met, who put me in touch with two of his clients that were interested and had a business plan very similar to what mine was. Uh, and then they said, yeah, let's, let's do something. So that site didn't eventuate. And then a year later, we ended up getting the first site from there. And I'd quit my job about three months after Lining up that investor because I just realised I'm like I can't, I can't keep this investor and properly commit to this without quitting my job and and actually going all out.
1: I'm quite keen just to explore this idea around getting your first investor into a project when you actually don't have much practical experience delivering your own project. Oh. Obviously, you had some experience okay. doing developments or ha- having discrete pieces of a development. Hmm. Talk to us a bit about how you managed to convince someone to invest in a project with you.
0: Um, so I, I actually managed to get two different, completely different investors to, um, that were very keen to work with me. Uh, I think it's you, you can't be ignorant to the fact that you haven't done it before. Like you can't pretend. Obviously, you know a bit about what you're saying, but you can't kind of oversell it in that sense. Because these are very, one of them was actually a very experienced developer doing large scale developments, and another was a very successful businesswoman. Uh, So they they see through your bullshit straight away. So I think you, I was just upfront. I said, look, I've obviously never done something before. There's a lot of things I don't know. Um, What I think I am good at though is putting together uh, a team, and I'd prepared a lot of case studies of people that had done similar boarding houses, and I had stats on what they'd sold for, I had stats on what they are renting for. Uh, so I, I kind of backed up with a lot of evidence to say, look, this is what people have done before, It's it does work. Uh, and I was very clear as well with the risks. Uh, not so much in the risks that, you know, if you're investing, you can potentially lose a lot of money, like they understand that sort of thing, but more so that, look, it's a sloping site, so we have these risks, um, there's we may not get this many units I say if and I also what I think really helped is the worst case scenario so for us I kind of always plot the worst case and I say look we're not going to we're never going to lose all that money because you own the property at the end of the day but the worst case is you know we spend all this money on developing it we potentially go to court it gets rejected and we're 200 grand in the hole we've got a site with no DA that's the worst case scenario so I said if that happens then we can subdivide the site into two lots we can sell it yeah we we may break even we may make a loss i do those numbers so at least they can say well worst case is we make a 100 grand loss um i think it's important to be upfront with investors on that because if you don't they're going to be pretty dirty with you if something does happen and you haven't made them aware of that but also it gives them comfort to say well It's not like shares. You're chucking all your money into a business where it can go broke and you do lose everything. You always own that tangible asset that's the land.
1: Yeah, I just published a new training course inside my own property developer training around raising capital. Mm. And I talk about these two points. If you haven't had developing experience and you're trying to raise money, don't ignore the elephant in the room that you haven't done a project before, but just address it yeah exactly and then the other it's part is crazy. having having a risk register in a in a proposal shows that you're a strategic thinker and that you've considered things rather than just being gung-ho and everything's going to be okay yeah
0: the yeah the irony of the elephant in the room is it's not nice to ignore but it's an elephant so everybody sees it like it's blaringly glaringly obvious
1: well so that's pretty good that you convince them to to go ahead but the They said yes, but the project didn't happen. Why was that?
0: Uh, It was, there was too much risk on it. So we, when I got them on board, I hadn't done, I was like pretty upfront about it, but I hadn't done my full due diligence yet because I'm not going to go start spending weeks studying at all unless I've actually got an investor lined up. So I said, look, in principle, are you interested? If you're interested, then I'll go do my due diligence. It was just—it was on the road was too busy, and there was a risk that we made may have needed like a slip lane, uh, which is you know half a million bucks straight up. The site was like there were just—it was there was too much risk for a first development. Uh, so I said, look, let's pass this one. But they like the business model. I like the business model. I said, look, there's going to be something that comes up. Ironically, six months later, the planning controls change for boarding houses where they needed more car spaces. So we then needed you then needed to look at starting to put in a basement. So that added quite a bit of cost. And then they changed them again to limit the floor space ratio. And they ended up becoming not feasible anymore. So that was about six months into looking for a project. Sorry, four months into looking for a project. And then we pivoted to childcare and that was a lot. That the return wasn't as good, but it was a bit there were better um the risks were managed a bit better for the tenant because you obviously got a longer term, whereas boarding house or co-op housing, you're just going, you know, one six one year to six month leases. Uh, so we pivoted to that, and then they kind of hung hung on for just long enough. Uh, but it was a thing of um, we were just we were just getting beaten at, at um, auctions, and childcare's a little bit niche, so you need specific type of sites, and they just. Once you once you look on realestate.com in you know, all the areas you want to look at, you just got to wait another two weeks for more properties to come to the market. So it's just a waiting game.
1: So how did you handle that conversation from with your investors from, <laughs> come on board with me and I'll do my first project on this type of project yeah. that I haven't <laughs> done before to actually let's pivot and go to another type of project that I haven't done before. Uh, thank,
0: thankfully, they, they were kind of Committed by that point, so I just said, look, it's the the property is different. I said I have because I had explored childcare before, so I had, a, and that's why I could move to it because I had a bit of an understanding already. Uh, I said, look, the the project's different, but in terms of the business plan and the philosophy, from the financial perspective and the wealth creation perspective, it's the same sort of thing. I said, if anything, it's potentially a little bit safer because we have that end tenant. Uh, I was. One part that really helped is again, I said, look, I don't really know how to design a childcare centre, so I'm saying obviously we're going to get an architect that specializes in it, but the big selling point and something that's really distinguished myself from other childcare developers is I then built a very good relationship with two childcare operators before buying the site. And instead of me finding a site, thinking it's the right location for a childcare center and then leasing it to someone and hoping I get the rent that I think I can get, I get them to tell me where they're looking to expand, what areas they're looking to expand to, what rent they can pay, and then I mm. focus on developing charter centers in those areas. We'll, we then sign a heads of agreement before I've actually bought the site. So from before buying the site, I can go to the investor and say, this is the rent that we're going to get for it. Obviously, Sydney mm. it gets approved. Uh, and then immediately after buying it, we then enter an agreement for lease. So often I would have an s- executed agreement before we've even lodged a DA. So that gave the, um, the investors a lot of assurance uh, and the operator was um, very involved through the whole design process. So for them, they were getting a completely custom built charter center, so they liked it. And I was getting a heads of agreement before even buying a site, so it was good for me. And I also had two very experienced people, an architect and an operator designing the center so I knew it was going to be designed right.
1: Well childcare assets became pretty hot over the last year or two. Yeah. Are they still popular?
0: Uh they're still popular. The yields have gone down. Like I've had some of the assets like went up in price by like two million in one year. And then they dropped in value just as quickly straight after. Um, so there was a there was a really aggressive spike in prices kind of towards that back end of COVID uh, and then as interest rates started because commercial properties tied very closely to interest rates the values so as interest rates started coming up that price dropped down but at the same time there's, there's now a short um, a lack of supply for childcare because a lot of people thought they could do it and now with interest rates going up and construction prices and just construction issues, there's a lot of people that are trying to sell sites now with approvals because they're just no longer feasible for them.
1: And why do you think that is? Just because they didn't know what, what they were designing or yeah, um, just too high? Uh, just a
0: few reasons. I mean, just, you know, when the market's hot, everyone forgets that it's got to come down at some point. So people are just paying stupid prices for property um like my the first childcare center i tried to buy i got beaten in price by about seven hundred thousand. i think i was going to put in like i don't know two and a half million they were paying just above three so that was back in 2019 and that was an operator and i just couldn't figure out how they paid so much for the site and now i finished my development a year ago and they're still trying to get their cds their cc the construction certificate and now they're selling it on the market and since then, the building code's changed, so the whole design needs to be amended to reflect the new building code. Construction prices have gone up like 40% since buying this house. Their feasibility is out of whack, and it's just an insane design. Like, it's, they've just put so much money into the design that just doesn't add that much value. So there's a lot of people like that that have just they've got money for, from whatever source. They've spent too much, thought it can all work, and the market has just moved... Too quickly in that time, uh, and it's not feasible for them anymore.
1: So, what do you think is going to happen in terms of a recalibration of the market and these type of commercial assets to make them viable?
0: Um, they're still viable. You just can't pay stupid prices. You can't. You can't pay. Um, uh, what's not optimistic, but where you're kind of forecasting, that the, assuming the price is going to start like this, forever, going to continue increasing, speculative. That's the word. You can't speculate that the price is going to keep going the way they are. Um, Thankfully, I mean, the last year for me has been a bit of a dry period for childcare because the rents just hadn't caught up to land and construction prices. But now that rents are starting to catch up thanks to inflation, it's starting to bring them back into equilibrium, as well as people not doing as developing as many childcare centres.
1: Well, given the predicted population growth numbers, you would think there's gonna to have to be demand for childcare centers over the coming years. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well that's that's what's also pushing up the rents. That so yes, I mean there's kind of, because there's a few different variables that aren't directly linked. So you've got you've got demand and inflation with both push-up rents, which aren't, they aren't directly linked, but they're kind of linked. But then you've also got land prices and construction prices, which pain the developer and also regulations. So the land price and construction prices aren't always directly linked, or they're kind of linked to inflation, but they're not directly correlated as well as the demand for centres. So, some and you also need to look at different suburbs. So, different suburbs, the rent, the day rate for charter centres, and the um, the land prices in suburbs, they're not always proportional to each other. So, you've kind of got to pick suburbs where the rent and the land prices kind of work well for you. And then you've also just got to wait until all those other factors kind of fall into equilibrium. And they always just balance each other out. You just need to wait for one to catch up to the other.
1: Well, I remember the daily rate when my kids were going to daycare and that was a long time ago and they were pretty high back then, so I don't know what they're like today. You're not getting much fun under one thirty a day now. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm. And then you did some projects beyond childcare as well, didn't you?
0: Yeah. So part of uh, the issue with childcare not being in equilibrium is I just wasn't able to get sites um, and I wanted to do more development. So I kind of looked at my business philosophy. I said, well, what's my philosophy of the business? What are the things that need? Because I'm not a childcare developer. I'm a developer that focuses on wealth creation and passive income and capital growth. So I looked at what other type of asset class fits that niche for my business, and I found um, special disability accommodation. So I, I think, in my opinion, it's a little bit more of a flash in the pan kind of development as opposed to childcare, which is more longer term. Um, but I pivoted the last year or so, and I'm still doing childcare, but the last year or so I pivoted and started looking at disability accommodation. Um, it provides, it kind of has the opposite risk and rewards to childcare, which is a nice change. So approvals are a lot quicker um the application's a lot easier because it's a compliant development the the cost to get in is a lot lower and it's much easier to find sites the flip side is that it's pretty much take all the tenancy risk um because you got tenants good that's that's where your key risk is whereas Shellcare you've got you know 10 plus 10 plus 10 year lease so at the moment i've got four of those running one's under construction and three are in planning at the moment
1: Specialist Disability Accommodation? Yeah. And are they one-off homes or...? Uh, so
0: there. one of them is a cluster of five uh, single-bedroom villas and the others are like five units on a site. So they range from one to three-bedroom units.
1: And what drove your decision-making around where to do those projects in terms of locations?
0: Uh, so the location there were there were three factors. So one is under the NDIS there's a rental calculator, so you know what the maximum rent you can charge is. So I kind of had to look at well where's where where's the good rent base? Or oh, actually no, sorry let me rephrase that. The rent's quite good everywhere. So even if you compare Dubbo to Sydney City, it doesn't vary as much as what you think it would. Uh, so that that was one consideration, but it wasn't the main consideration. Uh, The second consideration was the supply and demand statistics. So where is there demand for NDIS housing? Uh, And the third was land prices. So the two two real key ones were kind of balancing that supply and demand and balancing the land prices. So there's a really high demand in Parramatta in in Sydney Metropolitan, but the land prices are pretty cost prohibitive, Uh, whereas you go to the Central Coast and the supply and demand's pretty similar to each other, and the rent's only a tiny bit lower in Central Coast. Uh, so it kind of made sense to do it there. And then I also just factor in kind of capital growth I want to be doing it in areas where I can see a long-term capital growth.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I'm involved in an SDA project myself at the moment, so mm-hmm. I'm learning all sorts of new things around holding assets, which has been, yeah. been interesting. You touched on the fact that you wanted to create wealth. Um, talk to us a bit more about that and how you do that in terms of some of the challenges that presents. Obviously, you need a lot of capital, which I'm presuming you can't front all that all the time. Yeah. Talk to us a little through a little bit more around your philosophy and how that works in practice.
0: Yeah, yeah. So my, my business philosophy, which is, heavily inspired by Warren Buffett is by value investing and creating wealth uh, and passive income in the long term. So to do that, that draws me to commercial assets. Uh, From there, in terms of how I work out the numbers and how I work out how much equity needs to be put in that sort of thing, uh, the banks, when looking at commercial assets, they're kind of saying, well, in order to fund this asset, Uh, what's the maximum amount of debt we can provide that gives us appropriate interest cover. So they will want the net income to be one and a half to two times more than whatever the interest repayments are going to be. So once you know what your net income is going to be, you can then work out what the maximum interest you can have on that project is going to be. Once you know the maximum interest, you can work out what that debt level is going to be. And then from there, you can work out what the equity contributions will be. So once you're going to put all that together, then you have a, and you obviously need to do quite a bit of sensitivity analysis, especially in today's market, because if interest rates move up 0.25%, that's quite a big impact on your interest level, which then means your debt has to pull back down because you need to keep that interest number at the same figure. Uh, and that's kind of burnt me on, on my most recent project because we were doing all these numbers on, you know, a 4.5% interest rate and now it's sitting at you know they're putting it at like six and a half percent uh so you you kind of need to work back for those metrics once you do that though you're able to say well it's definitely it's going to be an income producing asset and then from there my focus is really on what the what's the passive income going to be of this project every year what's the capital appreciation because if you take childcare they have fixed rental increases so if you're looking at a three and a half, three to three and a half percent rental increase on, say, a five hundred thousand dollar rent, um, and then you apply five percent cap rate on it, you're potentially talking around the three hundred k mark. So every year that asset appreciates in value by three hundred thousand dollars without having to do anything. That's obviously assuming cap rates stay the same. But my mentality is, if I'm holding it for ten years, that then gives me the power to choose when I sell it. So I'm not gonna be selling it when the market's crap. You're gonna be selling it when capitalization rates are at their lowest point. And that's also the other benefit of holding these assets. You're not forced to sell an asset on completion. In in other words, I can, holding it is the default, but we can also sell it very comfortably because we have to, we're, we're often having to put in more, when today's market with interest rates being high, we're having to put in more equity than what you otherwise would if you're going to sell the asset because our threshold on how much debt we can borrow, the threshold is not based on the LVR, which is what it normally is for a typical project. It's actually based on your interest cover ratio. Um, two years ago, though, where interest rates were low, the LVR was that limiting factor. Um, so, I mean, it's it's good and bad. You kind of, you you may not be as efficient as what a developer would be but buying and selling it. But my thing is, once the project's complete, You're then making, you know, call it 150 grand passive income and 300 grand capital appreciation every year. So every year you're making 450 thousand dollars on a childcare centre with a fixed lease. Uh, So you don't have to do anything. So your effort level after you've de-risked it, you're making half a million every year by doing virtually nothing.
1: Um, What happens in an? That's kind of. What about in a high inflationary environment like the moment where your inflation is higher than
0: 3.5%? Well, there's there's two variables because when you're looking at that inflation, you, you've got to also factor in that you haven't bought, you haven't used cash for the entire property, so you're leveraging on the debt. So when you kind of do those numbers, you'd have to say, well, if we take my place in Borkham Hills, right, We've spent about, I don't know, 1.2 million equity and the rest is debt. So when you're applying, when you're saying inflation's at 5%, you need to look at, well, that's kind of, you can then argue, well, your opportunity cost is 5% on the 1.1 million. Um, but you've also, so, but then you're, you're earning 3.5% on increase on 500 grand a year. So even though, yeah, you, you are theoretically going backwards, it's not as bad as the full five million, um, but unfortunately, in this kind of market, it's like well, you kind of it's it's a bit difficult. Um, but I kind of keep saying, well, at the end of the day, like, yeah, if we were to take our money, most of these people, right? If they just keep investing, so I'm like, well, if if we sell it and take your money out, what are you going to do with your money anyway? You're just going to put it into another development, another investment, and every time you do an investment you're taking on a fair bit of risk, whether it's property or shares or whatever it is. And the risk of inflation isn't purely just on holds. They're, they're, they're more so on when you're developing it because you're getting smashed on construction price during that, you know, going through your DA process. So my thinking is, well, you kind of need to park your money somewhere anyway. Um, and when you look at the net rental yield, so or your your return on equity each year, it's typically it can vary from like 10 to 20% anyway. So every year return on equity is that 10 to 20% mark. So you're still earning, admittedly, the in, when the increases each year are slower because your increase is 3.5% and your CPIs are 5%. So the increase kind of decelerates, but you're still sitting at 10 to 20% return on equity. Um, the the problem you've kind of got though is we've got so I'm managing some shops that have CPI increases, and we can't we can't really hit them with like a seven percent increase because they just can't afford it. Like they'll, they they've sent us an email and said, look, we're happy. Obviously the rent has to increase, but they're like we just, we can't afford a seven percent increase. So you kind of get screwed with the CPI a little bit because you, you increase it at one percent, two percent each year. And then when it gets high and you try and kind of claw back some of those average increases, practically you can't increase it that much because you're just going to send the operator broke. Um, So, yeah, so 3.5% doesn't look great now because interest rates are, so inflation is so high. But I think over the long term it's a bit more sustainable.
1: Yeah, and this is always the crazy thing for small businesses in particular when you have a strong growing property market because mm. agents will go, well, we're going to revalue the property because the market's gone up by 10%, 12%. Mm. And so then they work out what their yield is going to be or what the yield is supposed to be on the property value. And then they turn around and go, well, your rent is meant to be X. Yeah. And you go, yeah. and the small business owner goes, well, business hasn't improved by... Ten percent, twelve percent. So it's a bit unrealistic to think we can just absorb a ten or twelve percent rental increase just because the market's gone up.
0: Exactly. Like, look, childcare can can probably absorb it better than other businesses because they're so heavily subsidised. That increasing prices by ten percent, the consumer doesn't feel the full hit. But the example I was giving, where we've got CPI increases, that's on a small corner shop, and yet inflation's gone. Not. So, theoretically, they can they should be increasing their prices. But at the same time, you know, there's affordability issues. People aren't spending that much money. So, they can't increase. So, it's, it's not. They're the people that actually can't increase their prices like that. Your Woolworths can and your Coles can. But those smaller businesses kind of just get screwed by both ways if you do that. So, with that one, you know, they've been tenants for like 20 years. So there's no chance we're going to go and screw them and put in a 7% increase, that sort of thing. So it's a lot of relationships as well with these guys. Like you need to, when you're talking 10 to 30-year leases, um, you kind of got to look at the long game. It's, it's It's not just about, I mean, you can argue, yeah, it's about profits for the long term, but it's not just about money with those kind of people. It's also about putting that relationship. If you've got a good tenant there, it outweighs the costs a lot of the time.
1: And so how are you structuring your deals when you're doing a long-term project? What are you saying to investors and what kind of contribution are you making or how do you structure those kind of deals? Uh,
0: so we we structure, we have a unit trust. I'd set up a unit trust every time I do a project uh, and that unit trust is unique to that project. So I don't kind of cross collateralize assets at all. Uh, then every investor has is a unit holder of that unit trust the way financially the way we structure it is a typical very typical as a typical developer you'd say I'm going to do the development and project management so I'm going to charge x dollars to do that and I'm going to get paid each month Um, and I'm also going to chuck in you know half a million into the project to get my piece of the pie in addition to that monthly fee uh, I've done it a little bit differently and it is a little bit unique to my situation and circumstances. so in order to do this I've been saving up I saved up for like six years before I went out on my own so I could do this. Um, I basically said instead of paying me a fee, I want to convert that into sweat equity in the project and I want a percentage in the project. so what that means is I can I get say 10 to 20 percent in the project and don't have to put in any my, any cash. The downside is I don't get paid anything, um, and there's there's good and bad things. So from my perspective, I'm leveraging my fee. So if my fee is 100 grand and the profit margin is 50%, my fee at the end of the day is actually 100 grand plus that 50% profit margin, and now I'm getting a stake of the, of the income at the back end. Uh, the good thing for the investors is I've got, even though people don't think I have skin in the game because I'm not putting in cash, some people have that assumption. I'm actually putting a lot of skin in the game because I'm not taking a fee for this. So I'm my fee is directly tied to the project performance, 100% tied to the performance. And I tell the investor, I say, if I don't get a DA for you, I, I'm not taking a fee. So I just wipe out my sweat equity because I can't in the right conscious go buy a site, get 10%, spend all their money, do a DA, have a fail, sell the site, and then get 10% of the sale. I just I just wipe it out. So. There's massive incentive for me to push to get DAs. There's no incentive at all for me for time to drag out. There's no kind of... It, it, I'm incentivized just the same way any normal investor would, if not more so, because I don't actually get paid until project's finished. So the projects are like, I'm feeling the burn just as much. And if prices... Because my my percentage is fixed. So if the equity level increases... And goes over my, what my sweat equity is. I actually need to start contributing cash, and that's happened on a few projects. So, I'm it. It hurts me when the equity increases because I'm having to
1: chip in extra cash as well. And correct me if I'm wrong, but did you have a case that you had to go to court to get approval? Yeah, yeah. So the first
0: one <laughs> that was a. was a stressful situation so I may have been a little bit too optimistic at this but the the plan was always to go to court actually for this project so I said to them I said look councils don't really like childcare centres but there's a what's called a state environmental planning policy that overarches councils regulations I said council aren't allowed to reject it unless it doesn't comply with these two items which is or three items which is setbacks height and car space. so I said as long as we comply with those and, you know, it's a reasonably good-looking design. They don't actually have any grounds to reject it. Uh, the council being council kind of went in with their control plan and said, up it doesn't apply with all these 50 items. And we all knew that they can't actually reject it for that, but it was a bit of a bluff from council's part because they just thought the development was a bit too big. Um, so we called their bluff, basically waited 40 days, took them straight to court, and um, we were we were fairly confident we were going to negotiate an outcome in the in the hearing, or sorry, the pre hearing, um, and it looked all looked good. But then their lawyer had a change of heart at the last minute and basically didn't want to reach an agreement with us. So we ended up going all the way to court. We were we were successful on all their arguments. The commissioner sided on us with everything because of this planning control. But even though in hindsight it was we were always going to win it just based on what the commissioner was saying. It was an insanely stressful period um, because you've got, even though the costs were factored into the project, you've got these lawyers' costs that are amp- that kind of spiralling a little bit. You know, they get quite expensive. In the long run, they work out because you save time and and you get the approval. But waiting for that decision when it's either an approval or a rejection, it's basically one of the two extremes. And if it's a rejection, you're back to where you were 16 months ago with, you know, 200 grand down the hole. So for my future projects, I'm not kind of that trigger happy now. Even though the court process, it does work, I don't kind of just go straight into it because it also sets counsel off on the wrong wrong side straight away. In hindsight, I probably should have built a relationship with counsel a little bit more, maybe given it a month or two extra and kind of then gone to court.
1: So, just so that I understand this correctly, the first project that you decided to do, that you convinced investors to invest in, in a project where you had no direct experience doing a project, had also factored in going to court to get the permit.
0: Cool. The, in, in <laughs> they the still agreed. Yep yeah, So, in, in the business plan, the business plan was, by default, we're going to go to court. The, the, the good scenario would have been if council liked it, but you also run the risk, if you don't go to court, you run the risk of negotiating for council with 12 months and they reject it and then you have to go to court and you've incurred all these variations from all the consultants. So it's it's a bit of a gamble and it's a bit of balancing it. And to be honest, most developers I know that do childcare, they always just go straight to court. Um, but, it, I mean, I've I had gone to court a few times before... This first, so I had, I did have experience in court, and I had successfully negotiated with council before, so I was comfortable in that environment, and I understood the process. But it's still very stressful, especially. It's even more stressful when it's not your money, when it's other people's <laughs> money. It's a lot of uh, a lot of sleepless nights nice leading up to that decision.
1: Yeah. So if you're a, a student of mine and you came to me and said, "Here's my first project that I'm thinking of doing." <laughs> It involves going to court to get the permit. I'd probably uh, caution you to think it through a little bit more. Well,
0: it it kind of gives you a bit of an idea of how painful councils are. It's just insanely slow. Like I've waited 18 months for an approval and they virtually changed nothing. They were just slow.
1: Oh, yeah, it's so frustrating dealing with councils, as you say. You have these long delays for what ends up being marginal changes from where you started.
0: Yeah, that's that's a whole podcast in itself.
1: Yeah, this actually could be a whole series. But the, yeah. it seems like there might be some changes afoot across the country, well, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, to try and accommodate all these extra people that are coming in. There's a realisation that planning isn't doing the job.
0: Yeah, and they're just they're incredibly understaffed as well with some councils, especially in, like, the growth corridors. They're just they're so overwhelmed.
1: Well, which is all the more reason why they should be finding ways to streamline applications mm-hmm. and have more performance-based criteria where they can tick boxes and say yes or no, or applicants can at least know if they can tick the boxes that it will get through more quickly. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, that's part of this kind of SEP. That overrides council. The idea is it's meant to kind of fast track things. And with disability accommodation, because it's a complying development, I now don't, that's one of the things I like about it. You don't have to go through council, it's all through a compliance certifier. So it, it's still very heavily regulated in terms of what you can design and what you can't design, but you're not waiting 18 months for an approval. And you're not being, and the problem I find with a lot of councils is a lot of the time it comes down to a bit, a bit of subjectiveness from the individual and the individual guest. So if you go to the same council, you may get a very different result depending on what individual is looking at it. Um, thankfully, other than that first council, I've actually had a good experience um, with, even though that's been slow, but good experiences with, with all the other councils. That's the only one I've taken to court um, of my own developments.
1: And speaking of certification, I think you mentioned to me at some point that your certifier who was doing the project lost their qualifications or something happened there can you tell us about that
0: yeah so one of one of my certifiers had their license suspended for a I guess a bit of a technical error I don't, I don't want to go into too much detail because I don't really want to say it without that sort of thing but a bit of a technicality but they're appealing it and I've kind of been successful in the first stage of the appeal so it's looking like fair trading may have made the wrong decision but because it's group homes it's a fairly I don't want to say unregulated but it's a new type of asset so there's a bit of because there aren't as many case, there's not as much case law some things are for a bit of interpretation and the problem is if you interpret it one way but fair trading interprets it another way the difference the interpretation may be small but the difference in the process is dramatically different it's like you're comparing it's almost like approving a house compared to a nursing home in terms of the regulations so that's kind of the argument that they're having now.
1: Um, yeah, it's, been a, it's still going. It's a, bit, it's a bit painful. So it sounds like you've had a pretty colourful um, journey over the last few years around property development. What would you say you've learnt about yourself along the way?
0: Um, in the short term, I'm extremely impatient, uh, which is probably a gift and a curse. Um, I think sometimes you need to be impatient in the short term to get things done but when you're dealing with councils it makes it, it gets very frustrating. Um, I'm I'm fairly good I think at understanding planning regulations and being able to see things in sites that some people can't see so I'm fairly good at seeing a site and really maximizing the value. Um, so two of my projects, uh, we've been able to do a childcare and a medical centre on the same lot. And it looks and feels like a mixed-use development, but it's actually a battle-act subdivision. But we, and we have the car park that looks shared, but we actually have a subdivision line that kind of zigzags all throughout that car park with no fence built up. And we have easements and right-of-ways all over the place. So that's been a way that we've been able to kind of maximise the site value and just see things that... Some other people may not have been able to see, um, and then just relationship building as well. Like it's so important to build good relationships with your builder and your key consulting team, and then you can kind of with ease just take them to the next project, and they understand how you work. You understand how they work. It becomes fairly effortless, and you just tweak the pro tweak the processes every time to just keep on making it better and better.
1: And, Julian, what about what you've learnt about yourself along the way? Any key discoveries? Oh,
0: probably the impatient one, to be honest. (laughs) It's just kind of reinforced that I'm an impatient person.
1: And yet here you are doing value investing for long-term wealth creation. Yes, yeah, so I'm.
0: I'm impatient. So, in, I'm impatient in the short term, but long. I'm extremely patient in the long term. So, I'm. I, I don't have. I'd have no stress with sacrificing something. You know, the good, the, the sacrificing the good now for the great later sort of mentality. So, long. I'm always kind of long term visioned. So, every, all my goals are always long term. I don't really have short term goals. Um, but the good thing about being, patient is that every day I'm kind of keen to kind of take that little step forward always just focusing on that end goal
1: and what about a favorite project have you got one so far oh
0: so I've got I've had two um, for different reasons so my first project is the first childcare that's my favorite project in the terms of um we we pretty much came in better than the business plan on almost all fronts except program because the day we decided to excavate was the day that all the COVID lockdowns hit us so that was a bit of a challenge um, but generally wise it's been a fairly successful project in terms of no costs really blew out um, yeah there were challenges like court and the build-up and so not the build-up but COVID and um, contractor short supply issues that sort of thing but um, Built some great relationships, Built a really good childcare centre. The operators in there, they've been in there for less than six months and they're already at 90% occupancy. They're doing really well. Um, it's just a really nice project. Uh, and the other one is one of childcare and a medical centre that I'm building at the moment. Um, the, the business plan wise, it's not as successful as the first one in terms of meeting those business goals. Um, we've just been hit with construction prices. But in terms of aesthetics and the site, it's incredible. Like it overlooks a, um, a sanctuary park next door with koalas and emus and kangaroos and llamas. So the whole childcare centre is elevated above the ground so all the kids can see all these different animals from the playrooms and from the outdoor areas. Uh, it's going to be a pretty incredible development once it's done.
1: And advice that you've received along the way that has helped you got any Uh,
0: yeah so one important one is that the risk and reward aren't always proportional um in 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 both both respects Uh, so a lot of people kind of always have this mentality you know if there's no risk there's no reward but the the risk is always just proportional as to how well you manage it as well as how much experience you have in it. So two people can take the can go for the exact same reward. They can do the exact same project, but the risk for one person that's say very experienced versus not experienced is completely different. So my whole thing is trying to continually minimise that risk while maximising that reward. Um, and I think that that cliche that they need to be kind of proportional. Like in order to get a big reward, you need to take a big risk. I think that's a really dangerous mentality to have. Because when you do that, you start making, I think you either start making silly decisions or you just think, oh, I can't get that big reward because I don't want to take on that big risk where they're not proportional. And on the same respect, it also flips the other way. You can also take a big risk for something with a very small reward when it's just not worthwhile. Um, so I think that's something that I constantly think about when buying sites mm-hmm. and, um, and when doing deals with, uh, with operators and, and that sort of thing.
1: And what about advice for people who might be listening in that are looking to take their property developing to the next level?
0: Uh, so two two bits of advice. I would I would I would really say you should find a niche, whether that's a niche in a niche in the type of development you do or some sort of niche that you can offer that other people can't offer, and really excel at that niche and just milk it for all its worth. Like sell it to the investors, sell it to the operators, sell it to whoever you're selling the site to. But really work and that niche is really kind of your talent at the end of the day Uh, but you need to work there and then what you also find is there's not as much competition because when you excel at that you're often better than most other people in that space Uh, and the other one I have which is kind of a bit more of my business plan but I always advocate holding your assets Um, it just creates certainty for the long term and for me I don't like the idea of having to develop continual Continually having to develop, no matter what the economic circumstances are, in order to, to basically keep the business afloat. I kind of like the concept of having assets that are finished, they're de-risk now, they're producing income. If the market's average, I don't need to be doing three developments. Year. I can pull that back to one development, year, or maybe I'll do nothing that year, because it's just, I'm gonna make a mistake, because I need to buy an asset, because I need to make a profit this year um so they're the two the two kind of pieces of advice that I'd give
1: and then what's what about outside of property developing what do you do to unwind or to relax or take your mind off things
0: uh so I do I do endurance triathlons and endurance events so it uh it again this is kind of a long-term thing like I just finished a race last week in Cairns, Ironman in Cairns last week, so that was like a 12-month build-up. Just finished it, and now I've got like a marathon-booked half Ironman endurance cycle and another Ironman at the end of next year. So it kind of ties back into my business of that delayed gratification, um, kind of that consistency that you need to build up. It it translates a lot to prop to development, Um, and also it's just a great mental unwind.
1: Uh, What's the delayed gratification of doing an Ironman? <laughs>
0: yeah, well, the the twelve month of training, and then the, I mean, there's no gratification when you're actually racing it. <laughs> <'cause> that's <terrible. laughs> But when you finish, it's good. <laughs> Is it? Like, so when I was record. playing last Sunday, I was just the whole the whole cycle for the whole eleven or so hours. I was just thinking, why did I do this? Like, why have I trained so long just to put myself through so much pain? I was thinking never going to do this again i'll only stick to short distance stuff for it you know you're in and out in a couple of hours um and then literally the next day i'm like i'm definitely doing this one again next year so it's a a painful thing to have i'll
1: have to uh, take your word for it i can't i can't see what the gratification would be of putting your body through that but there you go
0: yeah no i'm pretty i'm it's a week later i did a 5k run this morning i'm still pretty cooked
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Julian, if people want to find out more about you, where can they head to?
0: Uh, So if you have Instagram, you can find us at Whitestone Group Um, and then I've got a link in there with all the uh, other website and all that. If you don't have Instagram, I'd advise getting it uh, because that's where I post all the photos and it's just a good place to be for marketing. Um, But if you don't, the website is whitestoneaustralia.com.au. Because uh, someone took Whitestone Group domain, so I had to get a different one.
1: Very good. Well, thanks for being a great guest on the show today, Julian, and talking with us about your experience. It's been really awesome speaking with you. Is there any final comments you've got, or thing, anything you wanted to say before we part ways?
0: Ah, uh, no, I think I've said everything I can. I can think of. Thank you.
1: Well, it's been really great speaking with you. I've really enjoyed listening to your tales. I wish you all the best for the projects over the coming years and the wealth building. I'm sure you'll be successful at it, but thanks for being a great guest on the Property Developer Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for your time, Justin. See you later. See ya. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas, and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.